ESPN LA, Kamenetsky Brothers, Andy Kamenetsky, Brian Kamenetsky. Our guest has had an interesting and eclectic career, having made a name for herself in everything from journalism to photography to the Beastie Boys Fight for Your Right to Party video. She first gained notoriety as an MTV reporter and the face of the network's Choose or Lose campaign. She's since left traditional media to write and to pursue a career in photography, and her work has been shown all over the country as well as overseas. This month saw the arrival of her new book, Fantasy Life, Baseball and the American Dream. It's a unique revisiting of the best-selling classic Moneyball written by her husband, Michael Lewis. Fantasy Life documents in large part through her pictures some of the players profiled in Moneyball and allows us to see their lives in the 15 years since. Um, There's also a presentation and a book signing on April 29th at Arcana Books in Culver City from 4 to 6 p.m. Tabitha Soren, our guest, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You know more about my life than I do. (laughs) Well, that's probably why you checked in with us to find out what you've been up to. Tell me who I am. (laughs) So I guess the first question we'd have is just where did the interest in photography begin? Well, after the 96 campaign, the presidential campaign, I was pretty burnt out. And I got myself a Knight Fellowship at Stanford University. And what that is is that they basically pay you your salary to go to school for a year. And you're supposed to become a better journalist by not having deadlines and being able to have, you know, deep, long, extended exposure to material. And I, instead of going into something journalism-oriented or media or business-oriented, I ended up just taking all these classes that I had deemed unimportant when I was an undergrad. You know, college is wasted on the young, after all. So I went and took a whole bunch of Shakespeare and... Uh, psychology classes and eventually ended up in the art history department and stayed there. They, they basically ended up having to give me a key to the dark room because I was always in it. And I really just fell in love with a new topic, a new vocation. And I, I, um, I was at a point where I guess I kind of felt like the more successful I got, the more mainstream my work needed to be. And I got less and less interested in it. So, you know, I was at NBC Nightly News and doing a two-and-a-half-minute story on eating disorders. But I had to be addressing young people and their older crowd. And um, I just felt like I didn't have any nuance or subtlety anymore in the work I was doing. And art afforded me both. It's it's interesting. Like, do you think it would have been the same before you had, you know, this happened to you now when almost everything it seems is in kind of a non-mainstream outlet to to do the kind of work that you know you were doing. that's a very perceptive comment no i don't think so as somebody who listens to a ton of amazing podcasts just totally niched you know the niche audience just i had it at mtv that was great 18 to 24 year olds for politics i can do that that's who i am there was no pretending but the the bigger audience you had, the more you had to water down your message or your material or, um, and I, I just don't think that's the case now. I mean, to, you know, you don't have as big an audience mm. for each of these niche, uh, podcasts or programs, but the ones you do have are completely devoted. I think that's a fair trade off. Yeah, it seems like it. I mean, we will, the world we live in now though is, is filled with, I think more pictures and photography, than ever. I mean, when you talk about the way we communicate with each other now, it's 
seems like at least it's far more through pictures and video than than words. Have uh, you been on my website? I have. Because my next project, Surface Tension, is about that exact topic. That's sort of um, putting the cart before the horse because I know we want to talk about my book, Fantasy Life, but um, the next project I'm doing is on communicating with visuals instead mm-hmm. of words, and the, word, the whole world becoming more visual than verbal. And so that, not to get too far, later, yeah. Not, sure. to, not to get too far, Cedric, but like that, the, the, that's the one I saw where you're taking, it, it's the pictures of people's iPads and stuff, thumb correct? Yeah. With thumb the thumbprints all up, yeah. It's the grime that we all wipe off on our legs, you know, if you're trying to see your phone and you kind of wipe the oil that your fingers have created. I'm leaving that stuff on a screen, and it's hard to describe on the radio, of course, but I'm, I'm doing a show in San Francisco with that material uh, May 6th, and then in Los Angeles, I have a show going up June 24th, and it's 54 images. So it's a huge, huge show at Copaican Gallery in Culver City. Yeah, and they're really and, cool. And um, I'd love for you to come, but it's, it's, it is basically trying to get at the idea that our machines that we are using that create such ease in the world and give us so much access to a wealth of knowledge also create a struggle of conflict in our heads and trying to manage all the devices, get back to everyone who's messaging you in various ways. And really, it, the, the, disease, the design of the machines are so perfect. And um, I mean, they literally are, Apple designed them to be, here's a big word, oleophobic, which means like resisting oil. So I'm flipping that on its head and allowing the oil and the grime to build up as if it was sort of a map of your day or a week or so. You know, this is what I did while I was in the K-hole of going from Amazon to, you know, looking up sports scores to answering my email. And all of a sudden my whole day is gone and all I've done is stare at a screen all day. So that's what the art project is trying to get at. It's kind of interesting. It's nothing to do with baseball, but... But that's, that's okay. It doesn't have to. <laughs> every, not every book has to be about base, baseball. It's interesting, though. I mean, it's it, an, an exhibition like that. You're basically having people stare at the same devices that keep their attention from being often, I guess, long enough to actually look at, say, an art exhibit. You know, like it, right. But I think that we all, you know, I think all we need is a tiny bit of encouragement to go into a more reflective or contemplative mode. So I do feel like pushing forward the part of the screen usage that we normally are trying to look get rid of, me in sort of getting in the way of the viewer looking at the pretty picture of the girl or the sunset or the op- op- apocalyptic fire with the the traces of the human traces of our fingers i think that slows people down too and and i feel like art is an antidote just in general in my life and in most people's lives in slowing things down and putting you in a different headspace and so yes the project is about technology and you are staring at something like a screen but it's not it's a piece of art and they're and they're really large so and that that um, that actually kind of gets I'm excited about it. That, that kind of gets to what I was what I was asking before. It's like you, whether it's this book, this series, I should say, or the the fantasy book or other work that you've done in a world where photography and pictures is is dominant. How does that impact what somebody like you is doing when you're using photography as an art form? Well, 
you know, I'm I'm pretty egalitarian about this. Certainly, there are fine art photographers who who feel like playing around on Instagram or everyone taking pictures with their iPhone cameras is, you know, they look down on that and it's not professional. It's amateur. But gosh darn it, the the cameras are so amazing in your phones. Like, why shouldn't everybody be documenting their lives? I think there's a moment at which you need to decide, okay, am I observing my life or am I going to live it? There, There is a certain extreme that you can hit. I mean, we've all seen those people at, you know, Disneyland with their iPads, like, taping the entire <laughs> I, It's a Small World ride, and you go, really? I've caught myself, actually, from doing that. There'll be times where I'm taking pictures of my daughter, and I just stop and I say, wait, I'm not actually experiencing what I'm working so hard to document. I'm, yeah. I'm just so, filming it. So we're, we've all been there. And I definitely, I'm on that. I'm with you on that. But I don't think there's anything wrong with people trying to make beautiful uh, pictures of their experience. I think, I think it's all a form of expression and there's no reason to be snotty about it. Your food pictures must be amazing, though. <laughs> no, I do not do food pictures. No? I barely do food. I, I, um, I don't cook. My children mock me relentlessly because they say me and the microwave have such a good relationship. Well, they're probably hungry. <laughs> they have food. One of them is 17, and she's a foodie, and she, she cooks more than I do. That is, I really basically cook in the dark room. I think it is a very creative pursuit, and I, I have you know, I live in the Bay Area. My God, we're sweaty with foodies. It's ridiculous how much food is fetishized. So I think part of my reluctance is a reaction to that. Uh, but in addition, I do feel like my form of expression comes out creatively in, in my artwork, and I don't really need to be doing that in the kitchen. Do you have a dark room? Like, is that still oh, a yeah, thing? I do have an actual black and white dark room. Um, I can't do color in it because the color chemistry is so toxic, but uh, I did all the tin types in it. It's it, it's basically a garage that I've converted into a dark room, but we we only use it for art. Keeping it real, I like it. Well, uh, it just is a comfort zone for me. It's actually what I learned to do first. So, um, I I don't you know this is all this whole second career of mine is all trial by fire. So if I do feel some sort of facility or, or uh, expertise in an area, I want to keep doing it. I don't, I, you know, my, this project that I'm about to re, uh, show in Los Angeles is all color, so I didn't print any of them in the darkroom. But anytime I do black and white, I try to make sure they're gelled and silver prints. So the, the book Fantasy Life, it chronicles several years in the life of a lot of players in the A system, including some names that baseball fans will know, like Nick Swisher and Joe Blanton. How did you even decide to embark on a project like this, one that you, I, I presume you thought could be a long-term undertaking? Right. Well, I, as you mentioned before, my husband wrote Moneyball. So when the book was published, we went to spring training with Billy Bean, and he introduced me to this draft class. So it was a 2003 spring training, but it was a 2002 Oakland A's draft class. And I met the guys, and they were all so full of hope and, and purpose. I thought, how often do you meet a group of people about to all embark on the same journey, which will have very different results? I didn't know how different. I didn't know that only 6% of those guys made it to the major leagues. I thought it was much more than that. But um, I really felt like 
it was worth documenting, and the only way to do it was spend a long time doing it. I mean, the guys were totally confused after many years of I – mean, I would show them pictures, but they wouldn't see pictures out in the world, and, and they thought – you know, like, <laughs> I don't know what they thought. They thought, why aren't you ma- selling headshots of these? Or why aren't you making posters? Um, they thought you were a little money. creepy, didn't they? They were just sort of, I, you were I just following them around. They would never say it. But, you know, I kind of wondered, like, really? Does Nick Swisher think I'm just, like, doing this so I can hang pictures of him in my <laughs> crazy house or something? Like, that would be weird. Um, but... I think that they see after you make it to the majors, they see themselves as such commodities. They couldn't really fathom someone who wasn't making a buck off of them. And um, and at the same time, I wasn't going to say, "Oh, I'm sticking around till your you know your career fails." Um, I I was really interested in them after baseball, and I had to wait for them to get there. Definitely making a name for themselves in baseball was exciting for me to watch or heartbreaking, depending on the case. Mm -hmm. But I was also interested in the resiliency that they would have to show after the fact. I mean, if you have loved something or something has given your life meaning since you've been in Little League, uh, age five or six, and it's taken away from you, what happens then? And I thought that's as good a photographic uh, subject as I've ever heard. Um, now, our understanding, actually, is you're not necessarily a huge baseball fan. So what what did the process of following these players show you kind of about sports in America and the way we look at our athletes? Well, I mean, on the logistical level, just the minor league players have a very low-rent lifestyle. In spring training, there's three to a room in a motel. There's no privacy. They're on buses all night. They they get traded from one team to another at the drop of a hat. I mean, even in your if you're in the majors, Mark Tian was on, I don't know, nine different teams in a period of four years or something. He was on one team for one day and another team for 10 days and another team for just one spring training. I mean, that's like a rock band, you know, just the, the um, peripateticness of it. So uh, that was surprising to me. But in addition, I felt like because I did not fall in love with the game like I expected to, it's not like I hate baseball, but I just didn't didn't get obsessed with it the way the fans in the stands did. And because I was in the dugout, I could look up and see these people either having the time of their life or going out of their minds um, when a player did not catch the fly ball or struck out. So... I really wanted to get inside their head and figure out what in the world would is exciting them so much. And, and yes, of course, you have the conventional wisdom of, well, it's the gladiator theory that they're, you know, watching these people fight in a coliseum. But I don't think that baseball is as violent or as captivating the way football is on that level. So for me, I felt like because baseball is something that allows a pretty average-looking guy, a possibility of touching greatness through the major leagues, that it was much easier for a 10-year-old boy or a 50-year-old man to envision themselves Mm -hmm. out on the field. And because they didn't have to be super tall like baseball or have the girth of a football player, it was much easier to put themselves in the guy's position, and so it allowed them to sort of dream of greatness. 
And I just feel like American society in general pushes you that way, that um, we all have to stand out as this sort of like hyper success um, or our lives don't have meaning. And not every culture is like that. Not every culture has, you know, number one as part of their patriotic um, patriotic sort of talk or language, you know. I mean, even Trump is like, we're going to be number one. That doesn't... I don't think that is something that Japanese culture would identify with or Australian culture would identify with, but we treat that kind of total ambition and obsessed uh, obsession with success or being Derek Jeter winning an Oscar um, as normal. So to me, that's where going to a lot of baseball games landed. Well, it's interesting, too, just with baseball in particular, it, it really is a sport of failure. I mean, you, you don't get on base more often than you do. You strike out or don't put a ball into play more often than you do. There are tons of players who spend the majority of their careers in the minor leagues, and minor leagues, you know, by comparison to most other sports, are more public. So in that way, you sort of see those failings. It's, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting contrast compared to sort of that American dream that you're talking about, and, you know, that Americana is so associated with baseball. It's very true. That's very true. I mean, in the Bay Area here, there is definitely a psychology that includes failure as part of success. So if you've had a startup that has failed, then somebody is actually more likely to fund your second startup than your first because they feel like if you've had a you've learned something from having a business idea go under or not succeed. And so here we think of it as uh, necessary for greatness. But I think that in baseball, the other thing that accents all of that failure, I mean, in addition to being the only sport with a statistic called an error, um, I think that the separation of the guys on the field is so blaming. (laughs) You know, if somebody misses the ball in soccer, it's this melee of bodies, like, all on top of each other, or football. And uh, if you don't catch that fly ball in center field, there's nobody in your way. There's nobody there but the wall, and and the camera is spotlighted on you. And um, that's rough. Well, it's it's an individual. It's really an individual sport packaged as a team sport in a country that packages, uh, you know, sort of the that frontier individualism kind of thing. You know, in in the context of a you know a, a collective nation so absolutely and that's i mean that's how my sense. husband sold me on uh all of our children being such incredible incredibly devoted athletes i mean our family time is completely sacrificed to softball practice and pitching coaches and little league practice and swimming practice and on and on and on and um it, it was sold to me as well this is how they're going to learn collaboration this is how they're going to learn to work as a team for a greater good things are bigger than themselves but what i found from major league sports is that my guys were were auditioning every single night whether they were on a major league team or a minor league team of course the people in single a want to be in double a and double a want to be in triple a and triple a want to be in the majors but once you get there i didn't notice anybody i mean unless you're Derek jeter or an all-star taking a deep breath and going, okay, now I'm in my space. This is where I belong. And most of them were auditioning for the next night's lineup. Mm-hmm. So there was, this all, there was this Sisyphusian task of trying to per, you know, live 
or achieve this self-perfection that and communicate that to others who were in charge of putting them in the lineup um, that I just don't I just think that has a real dark side never mind spending from single A to major league wishing you were somewhere else mm-hmm. I mean that's not exactly healthy either um, so the book I mean if you go when you go to your website which is tabasorin.com correct yeah um, and people can look at some of the the, the pictures there but it, what's fascinating to me is it's 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 not like you know what you'd expect from like Walter Yost in, in Sports Illustrated that kind of action photography or whatever. It's 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 a lot of stuff that probably people don't see while they're watching the games in traditional ways. So what what to you was compelling about um, like you know about about the game and what what are the rest of us missing? Kind of the details that the rest of us are missing while we watch baseball the way we do. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that they are missing anything because they're paying attention to the actual home runs and the steals. And, sure. Um, I, I would say I'm trying to supplement that vision. So the sports professional sports photographers are super fast. They can anticipate one play before it happens. They know everybody's name. That was not me. I was lugging around a big 8x10 film camera some mm-hmm. of the time. I was shooting medium format film. Sometimes I was doing digital, but I couldn't anticipate the plays. And in addition, they have to cover the entire team. I just had to concentrate on whoever my guys from the draft class were for that particular game. So I had, you know, basically sort of a niche that I was going after. And I was, so while they were shooting the home run, I might be focusing on the Cleveland Indians dugout where I've noticed that there's, you know, this bubble gum on the ground. And then I look a little closer and there's a lot of bubble gum on the ground and then I look even closer and there's this brown pointy stuff sticking out of the bright pink stuff and it's tobacco and then I'm thinking what in the world people put tobacco inside of bubble gum and chew that together disgusting and then I look on the floor and say oh you know it's all wet and wait a minute but it's not raining it's really dry outside what's the wet oh my god it's all Bit. You know, so I'm standing in this place, and I'm sure there's double plays going on outside on the field, but my camera's pointed down. So I'm trying to point out some details that maybe are not, we're not used to seeing. But in addition to the details, I'm really trying to portray these athletes as human beings, people who are on a life's journey. And they're not heroes, and they're not winners, and they're not losers, and they're not failures. They're a complicated mix of chance decisions and just plain chance that, you know, determine their fate. Like, if they have to have Tommy John surgery or not, they can't really control that. I mean, I guess there are some people who could have bad mechanics and end up in that situation, but I think most of the time... You have professional athletes don't want to admit that we are both living and dying at the same time. It it doesn't behoove them to think that they um, are very susceptible to injury, mm-hmm. even though of course they know it. So I think that I think that I wanted to show them in all their complexity, and that's why I had them write essays for the book so that they could reflect back on what they went through. And not any of them said they wouldn't do it over again, but they definitely had some 
qualms with the way things went. And I've never heard or read anything from major league players or, or minor league players or just professional athletes in general that allow themselves to be as vulnerable and as exposed as the essays in this book. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your career, too, just in general. Um, when you were with MTV, you were interviewing people like Bill Clinton and Yasser Arafat in your mid-20s, correct? Yeah. How overwhelming is that to be in you know that type of position with a network like MTV? I, how much pressure do you feel to make yourself be taken seriously well, in the network? I mean, the short answer is that it was very high pressure, but there were also a lot of rewards. So I certainly wouldn't complain about it. Sure. But I felt like I was doing meaningful things. It was it was great for people to be paying attention to the stories that I reported, and I had substantial interview subjects who could impact the future of the country or the peacemaking process or what have you. Um, I didn't mind talking to rock and roll bands either if they were cute enough, but um, <laughs> I liked that they were not the only thing that I had to do at MTV. I think that the pressure of having all the other journalists or people that I respected and admired get transcripts, for example, of my interview with Bill Clinton or anybody that I interviewed at the White House, that was nerve-wracking because I was afraid that I might make a mistake. And, but I think we all have high-pressure situations like that. Um, mine was just amplified because of MTV's audience. I also think that because I grew up in the military, um, and I had to basically, I mean, my father was in the Air Force. I had to, every couple of years, land in a new school or neighborhood and prove myself and, and figure out what was going on in that community and how to be liked and what were the rules of the neighborhood. And um, I feel like I can be dropped into a new country or a new situation or a new story and figure out what's going on pretty fast. So I think I was good at my job because of that. And, and if you can think fast on your feet then you don't have as much nervousness and you can come across as, I mean, I, I was described all the time in my 20s as really poised. And, I mean, I probably was just faking it for the camera but because um, I know I was nervous inside, but it's good that I came across looking like that. Um, does that make sense? It does, yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, but... it's, not like, it's not like I was faking it. It was just this natural skill that I had developed by trying to, to prove myself in junior high school. Well, I mean, I think we all <laughs> we all do that. Um, you, you, one of the things though, you were at the forefront of the the choose choose or lose campaign, which encouraged a lot of young people to get out and register to vote and all that. And you know, for people who are basically the age that my brother and I are, you know, in in our forties, that's something that we have very specific memories of. And you know, to say that we are in interesting political times now, where you know the emphasis on young voters and uh, the you know millennial generation, all that kind of stuff is is huge. What what parallels do you see between what was going on? You, know, you said you 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 quit after the '96 campaign, and and what's happening now? What's similar? What's different? Well, it, particularly insofar really as young as young people are concerned, it's a really good question. But I don't know if I see many similarities. I feel like. Every day, I mean, my breath is just taken away by um, the political situation here. And I, I, I don't really understand why people think um, Trump 
was the solution to our problems. But he's in there now, and I, I am hoping that his administration and I, 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 there's just so many holes in his administration. There's so many posts yet to be filled, um, and people are searching desperately for some answers. And I hope that he provides some. I don't think it matters whether you're old or young. Um, I think that people, a lot of people have sort of attached their hopes to this outsider who they think is going to be able to change things in Washington. And I hope that he succeeds in, you know, in what they want. But I don't really, you can tell from the way that I'm phrasing these things, I don't really understand how they can think that. No, it was subtle, Tabitha. We really, we really couldn't tell. <laughs> if, it's, if it makes you feel better, <laughs> I mean, we don't I get don't, it either. I don't, this is not, I, I don't want to get on a soapbox. No, sure. But I'm really, I, I just really am scratching my head. But it's, um, it's you know. But honestly, though, it's less about you know. It, it can be, I should say, less not for everybody, but it can be less about oh, the Republican won or the Democrat lost, and simply just not understanding how this happened. And, and this in particular, it, and with MTV, like, is there a in your mind a direct, if I guess, long line from say the real world to President Trump? Two. That said, I i mean, the way MTV is now, I mean, my kids have no idea what it used to be like. They don't even associate it with music videos. I mean, they're, they are, I have a 17, a 14, and a 10-year-old, and they associate YouTube with music videos. Right. So um, you can't even, for most people, you cannot draw a line back to the work that I did on MTV because it's, the company has changed so drastically. But I do see the connection between the real world and the reality TV show that Trump ran called The Apprentice. However, in the interest of full disclosure, I have never seen an episode of The Real World, nor have I seen one of The Apprentice. I mean, it's not that hard to figure out what they're about. I've flipped through the channels and, you know, seen like three seconds, felt a little stupider for having watched that three (laughs) seconds and moved on. So um, I... I don't know that it's because they're attracted to him because it's just pure celebrity. I think it was his outlandishness as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be a boring celebrity. But I think, though, there was, for, there was for a lot of voters, when you'd hear people interviewed, people supporting Trump, there was a familiarity that I think yeah, they no, felt with true. Trump. That's true. They and, knew him. They, they knew him, but also, too, I mean, the—, the Trump is obviously not famous for being famous. He, he's done more than that. But there is a, a culture, a reality TV culture, where you can become famous for being famous. And the, I guess the extension from that is you could become president in some way yeah. simply by virtue of your fame. Yes, or the fame that gives you the megaphone to say the things that people are listening for, that mm-hmm. they want to hear. Um yeah, I mean, nothing makes me feel more old than our discussion right now. I, I, <laughs> Apologies. I we can, no, trust me, i got a couple others going to make you feel older, so hold on to that. <laughs> okay. um, and just and also, Andy is not blaming you directly for the election of Donald Trump, only indirectly. Well, you'd, so. gotten, out, you'd gotten out before, <laughs> or just about before it's that. Not it's not entirely really, your fault. <laughs> so, I mean, what? Hysterical. By, by what? Season you f- have to remember, I live in Berkeley. You know, I could be tarred and feathered if you actually... <laughs> 
um, connect that back to me some way. I'm pretty sure by season four or so of The Real World, you were out. So, yeah. I mean, it's hard to pin this on you. Uh, but, but the other thing that you missed, though, is the the sort of 24-7 news cycle where, you know, with social media and Twitter and, you know, Fox and CNN right. and all these no, people I having thought, to I fill that CNN space. is the 24-hour right. news cycle. Sure. And, if I was a reporter now... I mean, I've talked through this book tour. I have talked to so many print reporters who basically, you know, can't sleep at night because they're afraid that somebody's going to file their story before they get to it, and they're having to tweet throughout the day, and they're having right. to uh, post on Facebook as well, and then have video that go along with the print article. I mean, how you can you know, compose yourself and get your mind in some sort of quiet place to write a well-crafted essay or column under those circumstances, I'll never know. Right. So I, I think I can see where you're going. But what, what do you think that says about where we are now that you can kind of look from somebody who's been inside and now and understands it, but now is outside about where we are as a media culture? Anything I say about that is going to make me seem like a dinosaur. I mean, if you were brought up on a culture like that, you probably have no problem with it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But as somebody who is interested in, you know, not the conventional wisdom on something, but the unconventional wisdom, I'm not sure that um, I, I'm not sure that you can do that in a fast-paced social media way. Um, but at the same time, I don't think like the writers for the New Yorker or the New York Book Review are tweeting. So that's good. That's good news. I think it just you just sort of curate where you get your information from and have different different expectations from different places. So I'm glad I didn't have to make that adjustment myself because it creates a lot of noise in my head just as a as a user. And certainly, I need to have Instagram for my my art career, but in general, it, it, it seems like a burden to me. It is not something that I think of as a particularly creative venue. I imagine the idea of just having to tweet out, you know, big interview coming up, hashtag Arafat, doesn't sound <laughs> all that appealing to you. No, I wish it was that. I mean, if that's all they had to do, that would be no problem. They could have a promotion person do it, but they have to do more than that. I don't know. It would be tough. I would feel very distracted. Um, I, I, ahead of this interview, I, I rewatched your 1995 interview with Tupac Shakur. Um, mm. It was released. Uh, I mean, it came out after he was released from prison on bail. And I remember at the time it being a huge deal. But also rewatching it, I noticed the energy between you and him was really interesting and alive. And I, I was wondering how aware did he seem to you? of just his charisma and this aura that I, I think people were both fascinated and even repelled by that charisma and just his overall against just aura. Yeah. Well, I was definitely aware of it at the time because I felt like he was flirting through the interview. He was. <laughs> um, but I wasn't used to that. So I, I mean, even Bill Clinton didn't flirt with me. So I, thought that that was sort of unnerving. And then I realized, well, you know, if he, if I had just gotten out on bail from, um, the, from charges of sexually assaulting a woman, and now I'm sitting down with a woman for an interview, I might be extra special nice. So I don't think he had a crush on me. I think he was just trying to be on his best behavior. 
because he was dealing he wanted to show that he could be nice to women because the charges imply otherwise um but i do feel like we kind of clicked at the same time i mean i i had no i had no expectation of that whatsoever i didn't listen to hip-hop i didn't listen to rap i knew of him i certainly have listened to all of that for work but it was not my go-to um artist to put on my cd player which is what a machine that used to play music <laughs> spinning spinning shiny discs <laughs> um, I mean, it's... so when people people say that to me all they i get a lot of reaction now to that interview and that was a very long time ago um but i think that he was so smart and had so much to say in his lyrics um, and actually has quite a few songs that present women in a very strong, powerful way, because I think his mother, um, despite her uh, drug addictions from time to time, I think she was a very positive, powerful force. And he was full of ambition. So I think that he really thrived around other people who were young and ambitious, too. Um, and you mentioned that hip-hop wasn't your go-to music at the time, and it was... I think an interesting time for a woman, you know, particularly even a, a white woman, to be doing that interview given the recent uh, sexual uh, assault conviction and just a time before hip-hop was mainstreamed in the way mainstream is defined for rap, which basically means white people listen to it. Were, <laughs> were, were you conscious at the time of, I guess, perceived politics or other politics or otherwise politics of doing a sit-down with Tupac? felt like it was a good decision because he saw me as sort of the smart girl on MTV. Mm -hmm. I think that he, um, I think that putting him with a woman was deliberate on MTV's part. And I also think that they didn't want a fan sitting down with him. So even though, um, I didn't know much about his music. I mean, I certainly knew about his music by the time I did the interview, but I did it for work. I mean, just like I researched Bosnia before I went over there. You go back into, you know, World War One and see who was shot to kick off, you know, the problems in Yugoslavia. You remind yourself, even though you learned that in history, you go back and you listen to it much more intensely. So I did all that with Tupac, and I also had copies of his new record. Although, you know, the idea of sitting there in the studio with him and listening to it on camera, I couldn't think of anything more uh, undesirable. It's like, yeah, that's what am I going to do? Why I'm listening to this music? You know, bop my head up and down, snap my fingers, <laughs> like pull out a dance move. Like it was so awkward. <laughs> Plus, everyone around us was smoking tons of pot, and they all had guns on them. So I was not, not comfortable at all, but I had to pretend like, yep, no big deal. Let's see if I can squeeze in a few more questions. Right, but it's an interesting thing to be around somebody who is personally charming and also, you know, having, you know, accused of, I guess, was he convicted? Amy? He was convicted. convicted of well, sexual assault. Bad things, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, totally bad things. Yeah. I mean, he probably wouldn't be dead if he didn't have his finger in so many bad things. So, you know, that, he, but he's had... Crime and, you know, uh, difficult hurdles to get over since he was born. Right. Um, that is just, that was just his fate in life. I, I wished that he, I mean, he had so much to offer. It would have been so wonderful if he had ex 
you know, extrapolated himself from that culture and gotten out of this east-west rivalry thing and separated himself from Suge Knight. I mean, there were a thousand ways that he could have changed the course of his life, but the culture did not encourage that, and certainly the music industry didn't. Um, you know, I, I mean, we were basically patted down and not strip-searched, but just as almost very close to it going into, it was Bad Boy Records, right? Uh, I, Suge Knight Shug, owned... Uh, Death Row, Death Row. I, I could Google it right I, now. I think it's whatever record company Death it was. Row. I mean, everyone was armed to the teeth, and they wanted to make sure that we were not going to start any trouble in there. Right. So, I mean, they, I, the, the closest situation I had to that in terms of being inspected and all my equipment and, and what I was carrying in my purse and whatever was interviewing Arafat. So, you know, it was like, whoa, but this guy is in a world leader, and he's not trying to um, find peace in Israel, and he's not associated with a terrorist organization. And so, I don't know. I, I think that um, the world would have been better off and music industry would have been better off if Tupac had stuck around, but it wasn't to be the case. Um, all right, so are you ready for the parts where we date you and make you feel old? Oh, as if that didn't? Okay, well, older, I guess. All right, so I told my wife that I was interviewing you, and she was really excited about it. And and I say this respectfully. It's not because she knows your work as a photographer. Um, for people of our age, uh-huh. you represent something very specific culturally. Um, you know, we were all consumers. My wife and I, Andy, we were all consumers of MTV um, and knew knew who you were from that. And so... Because you've left the public eye in kind of a day-to-day sense, in some degree, it kind of leaves you frozen in time. Is that something that you're aware of, like in your day-to-day, in your work, that you know that the people like us still kind of you know look at you and see you as Tabitha Soren, the person who introduced us to politics on MTV? Well, that's sweet of you to say that I made an impression. Um, it has been a long time since I've done anything in the public eye. I I am grateful that my work in the art world is getting attention. And so in answer to your question, I don't think about that that much because of where I live. I mean, a lot of people here pride themselves on not owning a TV and never having one. So I don't get recognized on the street or anything like that. And that's fine. I don't miss it. I think I got out of television voluntarily. And so Mm -hmm. it was a pretty graceful transition. However, when I had to do all these interviews a couple of weeks ago when the book was released, it did occur to me, uh-oh, people have not seen me in however many years, 15, 20 years. I hope I don't scare the crap out of them, you know, because I don't, I don't look the same. Um, I've had three children. It was a little nerve-wracking to think that um, – I would have aged that much, and people might associate me with my 22-year-old short red bob hairdo um, on the back of a train with George Bush kind of look. Um, it did occur to me, but not until basically I was walking into the makeup room at Fox or what have you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's so, it's nice to know, though, like you said, that you made an impression and also, too, if it's something that is going to be everlasting, it was positive. I mean, getting getting people involved in politics at a young age, I think that matters. And also, too, I mean, you were you were uh, you're old enough to remember MTV when it was actually about music, right. 
and MTV's cultural impact can't be questioned. Well, I'm glad that you see it that way. I'll never forget, though, I was at, I think it was a Metallica concert. I'm not exactly sure of the place, but I was behind the barricade at the front of the stage, and it was either in between acts or before the first act went on. And I looked up at the stadium, and I saw this woman in, you know, head-to-toe, like, goth, black eye makeup, and, you know, maybe, like, a chain around her neck, and and she was walking pretty fast down the aisle, coming closer and closer and closer. And I was behind a barricade, so I wasn't physically threatened, but I thought, oh, okay, well, she's going to come, and I don't know, maybe she's going to ask me for an autograph, or maybe she's going to ask me to interview her or put her on TV, or... And um, she was coming with such purpose, and she got up really close to me, and I said, hi. I'm looking her straight in the face, and she's looking over the barricade at me, and she screams at the top of her lungs, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh, that's interesting, because we've never met, but... Mm. So you hate the the idea of me on TV, or you hate, I don't know what you hate about me, but you hate me. And it, I just thought, man, this sucks. This girl, <laughs> she made all this effort. She left her seat up at the top of the stadium, came all the way down to me. Like I think I feel like we're at the Astrodome or something, someplace huge. And that's all she had to say. <laughs> I was like, all right, great. Good night. Uh, I, I imagine you will be getting a much better uh, reception at Arcana Books in Culver City. Uh, Ooh, nice segue. Yes, you. Arcana Books, please come. I can't tell you how upsetting it is when you have these events and uh, seats are empty. If what? you can brave the traffic to Culver City on Saturday, April 29th, I would so appreciate Even it. Even you, Metallica lady who hates Tabitha Soren, <laughs> yeah, no, please come. You can stay home. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the book is Fantasy Life, Baseball, and the American Dream. Uh, Tabitha Soren, thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. It was nice talking to you. Thanks for bringing back all those memories. No problem. <laughs>